Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson lecture on the Ransom Trilogy. These lectures were hosted by New St. Andrews College and can now be found on the Canon app under the Lewis Lectures. Go download the app today in the app store of your choice and listen to the rest of the lectures. All right, let's pray and start. Father, thank you for our time together now. We commit it to you and ask you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are continuing our way through the uh, Ransom Trilogy. And as you recall, I've been trying to urge people to start calling it the Ransom Trilogy instead of the Space Trilogy, because one of the central points in writing it was to get people to quit calling outer space space. Um, you could call it the Heavens Trilogy, but I don't think that would catch. I don't think that would work. I think the Ransom Trilogy works. So that is your mission, to get people to talk, stop talking the way they talk. So we come to the third book in the Ransom Trilogy, that book being That Hideous Strength. Dr. Elwin Ransom, a Cambridge Don, remains an imposing and very important figure in this book, but he's no longer the protagonist as he was in the first two books of uh, this trilogy. So his, um, in Out of the Silent Planet, he's the protagonist. In Paralandra, he's the protagonist. Uh, here, he's sort of like the king off stage, you know, uh, off stage for a large um, part of the action. The protagonists are a contrasting pair, a married couple named Mark and Jane Studdock. The collective antagonists are the leaders of the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, men like Wither, Strake, Philostrato, Frost, and Lord Feverstone, who is the same uh, guy, same man as Divine in the first two stories. So the villains in the first two are Weston and Divine, and Divine has gotten a promotion, has become Lord Feverstone, and figures in um, as a minor bad guy character in the, this third story. Fairy Hardcastle is the lesbian head of the secret police of the bad guys, the nice. And as it turns out, Merlin never really died, and much of the book consists of the two adversarial groups trying to get to him first. Um, the bad guys assume that Merlin would be on their side if recovered. The good guys assume that Merlin would be on their side if recovered. So they're trying to capture a hostile, and the bad guys are trying to capture or gain an ally. Almost assuming the stature of characters, we have two different places in this conflict. Two vision, and these two places represent two visions of what two competing, colliding visions of what human society should be like. The nice took over a mansion called Belbury, and the ragtag collection that is gathered around Ransom has done so as the company at St. Anne's. So these are the two competing views of what human society should be like. Belbury and all its machinations and politics and so forth, and then a small nondescript company at St. Anne's. This motley collection includes an elderly couple named the Dimbles. Uh, Dimble was a professor at the, uh, 
at the college that they got uh, turned out of, a spinster named Grace Ironwood, a skeptic named McPhee, a bear named Mr. Bultitude, and a servant woman named Ivy Mags. So uh, just a, a couple of comments. Uh, Dimble is a good guy, a scholar, um, an important character in this novel. Grace Ironwood has some sort of secret um, in her past that is never explicitly revealed. There may be hints enough to pursue, but uh, it's not out on the table. McPhee is, a, um, is an interesting combination. So Lewis's... Um, uh, is like a, think of him as a mashup of... Um, it, McPhee is to this book what Puddleglum is to the silver chair. And uh, Puddleglum was modeled after um, Lewis's gardener, a guy named uh, Paxton, uh, and also probably modeled after Kirkpatrick, his tutor when he was a when he was a young man. You know, logic, precision, everything's got to be. You, you've got to be able to demonstrate your work and and uh, and so on. Silver chair, we have to start by finding the lost city of the giants. And Puddle Glum says, we have to start by finding it, do we? We're not allowed to start by looking for it. Is that, you know, be more, be more precise. Uh, McPhee is very much this uh, character in, uh, in this story. He doesn't, uh, like Kirkpatrick, he has a, um, uh, he's a, he's a Scot, a skeptic. He tells Ransom near the end of the book, if I ever take, to religion, ransom, it won't be your kind. Um, my uncle was the moderator of the General Assembly. So he, he is, uh, even though he's an atheist, he's a Scots Presbyterian. That's what, that's what he is. And that's how Kirkpatrick was also. Kirkpatrick was an atheist, his atheist tutor, and, uh, but would, and would garden on the Lord's Day, but it would always dress up in a suit. So uh, Kirkpatrick would dress up in a suit and go out and garden on the Lord's Day because it's the Lord's Day. So, he, so he's a, an atheist Presbyterian. Mr. Bultitude um, is the bear uh, that lives at St. Anne's. It plays a very important role in the story. As, as it happens, um, Lewis, when Lewis, Lewis's conversion happened in two stages. The first was when he became a theist, and um, and the second was when he decided that Jesus was the Son of God, when he came into the conviction that Jesus was divine. So the first stage is he he records it in um, um, in Surprise by Joy, where he got down on his knees, the most reluctant convert in all of England. That is where he admitted that God was God. He became a theist at that point. He talks about that in Surprise by Joy. He became a Christian. Um, he was converted, be becoming convinced of the deity of Christ in a motorcycle sidecar. So um, he and his brother, his brother was driving him to the Whipsnade Zoo, um, which I think is in London. And uh, Lewis was riding in the sidecar of the motorcycle. And he says, when we departed for the zoo, I did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And when we arrived at the zoo, I did. Right. So the, somewhere on that motorcycle ride, Lewis um, became convinced of who Jesus was. The reason I bring all that up is because there was a favorite um, animal at the zoo that, um, that Lewis 
loved at the Whipsnade Zoo, uh, a bear that he called Mr. Bultitude. So Mr. Bultitude was the bear at the zoo that, G, uh, that Lewis was going to visit, and he works him into the story here. There's a servant woman named Ivy Maggs, and Ivy Maggs, as it happened, was the servant to um, the Studdocks. And then when the nice takes over the town and evicts everybody and everything's unsettled, she's displaced and she takes refuge at St. Anne's. So it's quite a a group. It's a maimed uh, interplanetary traveler, Ransom. The Dimbles, there's another couple, the Denistons, um, uh, Grace Ironwood, McPhee, Bultitude, Mr. Bultitude, and Ivy Mags. If you think this is not the kind of group that most of us would select to fight off a cosmic plot to take over the world, you'd be right. But it is just the kind of group that God usually picks. In the course of the story, Mark Studdick has fallen in with the group at Belbury. He is uh, dragged in, sometimes against his better judgment and against his um, wishes, but always the hook is his own lust to belong. So Mark Studdick has fallen in with the group at Belbury, and his wife Jane has taken refuge at St. Anne's. So we have two competing visions, uh, two competing kinds of community, human community, uh, in, on a collision course with one another, and a, an estranged married couple with one of them in one group and the other with the other group. The action of the first book took place on Mars, or in the terminology of, this, of the Ransom Trilogy, Malacandra. The action of the second was mostly on Paralandra, or as we call it in our tongue, Venus. The action in this conclusion to the trilogy occurs on Earth, or Thulcandra. This is the silent planet that is referred to in the title of the first book. In the cosmic war that had occurred centuries before, the Oyarsa of all the various planets had fought the rebellious Oyarsa of our world, that is, Satan. Uh, Our our Oyarsa rebelled, and he was fought back to his lair uh, by the other Oyarsa. And since that time, our world had been quarantined and isolated from the rest of the cosmos. We were the silent planet for that reason. Uh, It's kind of a hostage situation. So we are holed up in this planet, held captive by the devil, uh, held captive by our rebellious Oyarsa, and then out there past the moon, all the other Oyarsa are unfallen, their planets are unfallen. They had known war because they had to fight our rebellious um, Oyarsa back to uh, the silent planet. And we are uh, sort of locked up here, not really knowing what's going on. In most of these, um, in most of Lewis's stories, the characters are taken out of the reality that we're in and placed in alternative worlds where they learn the nature of true, rea- true reality. They go out there, they go out to Narnia and find out what things are really like. And then they bring that awareness back here. So they go into another world, learn something and bring it back here. This is what happens in all the Narnia stories. This is what happens in the first two books of this trilogy. It's what happens in The Great Divorce, for example. But in this story, that whole process is reversed. 
In this story, this normal world of ours is shown to us in ways that become increasingly surreal until at the climax, the outside reality bursts in and transforms this world. So the normal pattern that Lewis gives us is you leave this world, you go to a strange world, you learn wonderful things, you come back to the ordinary humdrum world where you try to remember those wonderful things that you learned. Here there is an, here there is an invasion. The plot device that drives most of the action is the desire of the conspiracy, the nice conspiracy at Belbury, to find the location of Merlin so that they can use him to further their evil designs. The company at St. Anne's is engaged in racing them to find Merlin first in the hope of thwarting their plans. I don't know what they thought they were going to do with Merlin if they got him, given what they uh, uh, thought he was uh, like, but um, and given how overpowering he actually was when he shows up, but they're 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 trying to thwart Belbury's plans. So in the meantime, the evil party has been communing with quote unquote macrobes, which are actually demons, which are actually evil spirits, which are actually devils, and they've succeeded in keeping the head of a guillotined prisoner alive from whom they received their directives. They began this pursuit believing themselves to be men of reason and objective science, but they end by throwing themselves headlong into necromancy, which is communication with the dead using evil magic. In my view, this book, uh, just this is my, my take, in, this, in my view, this book is one of the most powerful and prophetic books to have been written in the 20th century. I, I think it is a classic. I think it is, it's astounding to me how prophetic it has been in so many, um, in so many different ways. Mark and Jane Studdick, the protagonists, are unhappy in their marriage. And this is because neither one has been willing to accept the station in life to which God has assigned them. Their respective sins in this regard drive much of the action of the book. Mark is sinning against what God has assigned to him, and Jane is sinning against what God has assigned to her. Mark Studdick has been driven for much of his life by a lust to belong, and this makes him vulnerable to the lure of the complex systems driven by the inner ring, first at Bracton College and then at Belbury. Bracton College is where uh, uh, Mark was a professor, where Dimble was a professor. Um, it was the college that was at the heart of uh, the small town of Edstow. So there is this conspiracy at Bracton College, and Mark's an outsider. He wants, he wants into the inner ring. He finally makes it. He discovers there's an inner ring within that inner ring. Then he finds out there's another inner ring a little bit down the road and so on. This whole theme is developed, developed by Lewis at length in an essay entitled The Inner Ring, which can be found in his collection of essays called The Weight of Glory. So if you want to read three books together, The Great Prophet, uh, That Hideous Strength, then the essay, The Inner Ring, and The Abolition of Man, which is a nonfiction book that Lewis wrote at the same time he was writing uh, That Hideous that that hideous strength, seeking to address the same issues. So you've got 
a nonfiction and a fictional book standing side by side talking about the same thing. So this desire to be accepted by the the in-group, the desire to be in with the popular kids, is the lust that defines Mark Studdick's life. Mark Studdick is the walking personification of this lust. Interestingly, Jane Studdick has the very opposite problem. It's a photo negative of Mark's problem. While Mark desperately wanted to belong to the important set, Jane is fiercely opposed to quote-unquote belonging. She does not want to belong to her husband, which causes friction between them. And when she's forced to take refuge at St. Anne's because the bad people are, you know, uh, you know, she was captured and then uh, um, uh, tortured by Fairy Hardcastle, she finally takes uh, refuge at St. Anne's. It's only because she's chased there. She, she pretty much has to be there. She's very resistant, and so when she's at St. Anne's, she's very resistant to the idea of submitting herself to that particular society. She wants independence. He wants to belong. She wants independence. He wants to belong, and they both just irritate one another. Okay, They're they're out of step. Ransom tells Jane that her problem with her marriage is not what she supposes. This is Ransom. He says, you do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. Okay, let me read that again. You do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. In order to be obedient, she would have to submit to a husband She would have to say, I belong to him. She would have to surrender. And that's the one thing she does not want to do. She does not want to surrender. And uh, and this this is quite striking. Her conversion occurs when she finally wonderfully submits. Her conversion occurs when she finally lets go. That's when she's converted. Mark's conversion occurs when he finally, wonderfully rebels. Okay, so she is converted when she submits. He is converted when he rebels. Mark's transformation is described in anticipation as the moment when he would finally begin to be a person, page 217. That moment happens when he is being prepared in the objective room, which is actually the screwed up room. Everything everything about it is just a little bit off. He's being prepared to to, um, reject and walk away from all his human feelings. He's being prepared in the objective room, and he is uh, told to show blasphemous contempt uh, to a crucifix. And Lewis is very explicit in describing Mark's change as one of learning rebellion, page 329. When he is pressed, he finally replies, it's all bloody nonsense, and I'm damned if I do any such thing, page 337. And that's, of course, precisely precisely what the issue is. When, um, if if he says, I'm damned if I do any such thing, it's not just, it it may be uh, a figure of speech for him, but not for Lewis. If if he does any such thing, if he goes that route, if he takes one step further down that road, he is going to be damned. 
For Jane, it works in the opposite way. She had been in the grip of what Lewis described as, quote, a prim little grasp on her own destiny. A prim little grasp on her own destiny. Ransom tells her she needs to agree with her adversary quickly. She says, you mean I shall have to become a Christian? He replies, it looks like it. And then when it happens, love swallows up her personal identity, but in a way that makes it possible for her to become Jane in truth. Here's a quote from page uh, 318 to 319. In this height and depth and breadth, the little idea of herself, which she had hitherto called me, dropped down and vanished, unflattering into bottomless distance, like a bird in a space with no, without air. But notice what's going away. Jane's not going away. It's Jane's idea of herself that's going away. It's her little ego idol. She had a little ego idol that she wanted to be autonomous and independent, and she finally surrenders, and that flutters away. This struggle for the salvation of these two individual souls, because that's what this book is about, the salvation of Mark, the salvation of Jane. They, they are both lost in very different ways. The struggle for the salvation of these two individual souls takes place in the foreground, but in the background is the struggle for the salvation of the world. What is the particular nature of this struggle? The way Lewis has set this conflict up, it is a battle between the Gnostics and the Incarnationalists. It's between the Gnostics and the Incarnationalists. On the one hand are those who are hyper-rational, hyper-intellectual, and even hyper-spiritual. They don't like stuff, particularly living stuff. Their idea of purity is entirely ethereal. Entirely ethereal. I already mentioned this, but in his book, The Abolition of Man, a book that corresponds with, this point, uh, with his point in this book, that they're, both books are making the same thing, Lewis uh, making the same uh, uh, point, Lewis di dissects the process of education that produces men like Mark Studdick. So the system, of, the system of education being assaulted in the abolition of man is the system of education that produces men like Studdick, men that Lewis describes as men without chests. It's ironic and probably not accidental that the whole society at Belbury is governed by a bodily head, but it is a head that literally has no chest. So um, this uh, criminal was decapitated, the head is taken, mounted on a shelf, has a bunch of tubes running to it, is kept alive. The demons speak through it. When they, when they begin, they think they are uh, doing science, but what they're actually doing is calling down uh, demons. But this head that's animated is a head with no chest. The process of taking over the small town at Edgestow consists of bulldozing the place and getting rid of that which grows. The small town of Kierhardy, which Belbury plans to annihilate, is a representation of Gnosticism's hatred of that which is particular and homey. So if it's particular, homey, earthy, um, they, these people hate it. St. Anne's stands for that which is fruitful, that which multiplies. 
Belbury stands for sanitation and for making the world much cleaner, like the moon. The moon is a clean place because we've scrubbed it free of almost everything that's organic. The, cul- the, the culmination of... Um, the culmination of, of the, all of this at Belbury is when the judgment of deep heaven, which they foolishly brought down upon themselves. In other words, Thulcandro was quarantined, and the good guy, the good guy Oyarsa, had to stay out there. That was the arrangement. Uh, it's, it's quarantined. But the bad guys here didn't know that by going into deep heaven themselves, they were breaking the truce, in other words. They were breaking the agreement, which meant that the Oyarsa could now feel free to come down and work on this planet. So they've brought, they've brought down the judgment of deep heaven upon themselves. But this judgment intervenes to prevent another kind of judgment, the judgment of them receiving what they were laboring to get, Some kinds of sins incur judgment, and other kinds of sin are the judgment itself. If Belbury had gotten its way, the culmination of their work would have been a pristine and sanitized world. The company at St. Anne's did prevail, and the culmination of their victory was a celebration of fertility, a celebration of fertility through some very earthy activity, with all the animals released from Belbury finding a mate, including the elephants, and glorifying God by mating. And this does not exclude the couple who are restored to one another, uh, restored to one another, Mark and Jane Studdick. So you have earthiness on the spiritual side, and you have um, contempt for material things on the, uh, on the bad guy side, the Gnostics side. So um, I mentioned earlier that That Hideous Strength is a prophetic um, book. It was written in the 1940s. It's written in the 1940s. There is a, um, and I mentioned a few moments ago that the moon is this pristine, clean place that one of the bad guys, I think it's Strake, one of the bad guys um, says, see, we will have achieved our goal when we scrub this planet clean like that one, and our planet is this rock, and then it comes out that the moon is inhabited, and well, how how can they live up there? Well, one of the things they do is they have a um, they reproduce through uh, not through ordinary sexual congress, but they reproduce by having intercourse with cleverly designed contraptions, right? And the thing that's remarkable about this is Lewis is anticipating what, what people are now talking about, um, uh, robo, uh, robo-sex, virtual reality, all of those things that he was talking about in the 1940s are things that people are working on now. We're tr- we are trying to do the things that he was outlining in this, dis, uh, in this dystopic vision. And the issue is, I, I think that we need to be talking and writing and opposing this sort of thing far more stridently, stridently than we are. But the, my only reason for bringing it up here is how could C.S. Lewis see that coming in the 1940s? How could he, how could he, I don't know. So Lewis takes the name, that hideous strength, from a poem written by Sir David Lindsay. 
whom Lewis describes as the last major poet of the old Scots tradition. He was writing in the first part of the 16th century, so early 1500s, and this is how Lindsay describes the Tower of Babel. The shadow of that hideous strength, six mile and more it is of length. All right, so the shadow of that hideous strength, um, the Tower of Babel, six mile and more it is of length. By citing a poet from 400 years earlier, who was talking about the rebellion against God that occurred right after the flood, Lewis is placing this conflict as simply uh, the latest battle in the long war against God. So uh, that's how he positions this as just part of a long-running battle. The issues are perennial. They are constant. At the same time, there is progress in the war. It is not as though good and evil are constantly in dualistic tension on either end of the tug-of-war rope that we call human history. So this is not... uh, uh, Lewis makes this point elsewhere where the devil is not God's opposite. God has no opposite. If there is an opposite to the devil, it would be something like the archangel Michael. So Michael and the devil are opposites, but God has no opposite. Uh, One worldview that Lewis takes seriously and engages with. He considers it, apart from Christianity, the manliest, manliest creed on the, on the market is dualism. So Zoroastrians were dualis, uh, dualism. And it's not dualism to believe in Michael and the devil. It's dualism when you say that the cosmos is uh, governed by two opposite and equal forces, one good and one evil. So there's uh, good and evil are part of the built-in tension of everything that is. There's good and there's evil, and they're constantly in tension with one another, constantly at war with one another. And Lewis's critique of dualism is this. Um, how are good and evil um, possible terms for this? Good by what standard? Evil by what standard? If the evil side doesn't accept the standards of the good side, then in what sense, in what sense was the evil side obligated to? In other words, if you, if you assume that there are two opposing forces in the cosmos, you can only call them good and evil if there's a standard that overarches the two of them to which one of them is submitting and the other one is not submitting. But then if you, then the question is, where did that overarching standard come from? Well, that overarching standard, if if it's truly good, it's got to be the God of the Bible. It's got to be the true and living God. So um, Lewis believes that there's an antithesis, that there's a struggle all the way through, uh, a struggle all the way through, but it's not a constant um, struggle with everybody staying in the same place. There's actually progress there, the, the war ebbs and flows. There, it goes back and forth. It doesn't stay in the same place. An important part of that progress is the fact that God uses the conflict to make each side in the conflict more consistently aware of their own presuppositions. This is what the theologian Cornelius Van Til called epistemological self-consciousness. Epistemological self-consciousness is the awareness, coming to the awareness that I am a creature of God and I'm utterly dependent upon him for all my thoughts and actions, or 
I am in high rebellion against God, and I'm going to rely on myself for all my thoughts and actions. And there's, there's a greater awareness, a greater clarity of mind on the part of both sides about this. It's what um, Mr. Dimble called coming to a point, page 283. Everything and everyone, whether good or evil, becomes more and more like itself. That which is evil gets worse, and that which is good gets better. Part of the reason, um, basically, um, the fact that the farther we go down the road, the good are getting better and the evil are getting worse, that's, everything's coming to a point, as Dimble says, and, and both sides are much more aware of the good or the evil of the other side. They're aware of their own status and they're aware of the status of the other side. Uh, and that's why there was confusion about Merlin, right? Merlin lived upstream before things had come quite to a point, right? And, uh, well, you know, even in your time, Merlin, it was never quite lawful. It was kind of okay to do that, but not now, no more, all, you know, all done. The change, uh, there's another important aspect to this, the change between this book and the first two books is uh, is in part due to the location described earlier. Um, Here uh, in the other books, an earthling is going to other planets and he's the stranger from out of town. Uh, In this book, all the strange things come here. Here, Earth is invaded by larger realities outside where, in the first two, a visitor from Earth went to visit that reality outside. In this work, Lewis has to invert our normal way of thinking, our normal way of looking at the world. He turns it upside down. When one of the Oyarsa descends into Ransom's presence, it appears crooked, but in a way that reveals that the world is actually that which is crooked. So you're looking at the Oyarsa, and you realize that it's straight, but it looks crooked because our world is crooked, uh, assuming the tilt of the axis. Which is straight and which crooked? The entire book is like this, bringing the calculus of heaven down to earth and making us see how our normal standards are not what they have seemed, are not what they have seemed to us to have been. There's another, so that's, that's the reason uh, for the difference you can point to in the books. But there's another uh, reason for the difference. Between Paralandra and that hideous strength, Lewis was greatly influenced by his friendship with Charles Williams. Charles Williams was um, a remarkable man, a colossal weirdo, um, just he, um, a genius. He, he's written a number of um, uh, scholarly books, The Descent of the Dove, he wrote a tome, he wrote a book on witchcraft. He wrote a series of seven novels that are really strange um, novels. Charles Williams worked for Oxford, uh, he worked for Oxford University Press, and this was written, um, uh, Lewis is doing uh, this work on this book during the war, during World War II. Um, Williams worked in London with Oxford University Press, and because of the bombing, uh, they were they relocated to Oxford. So he he's, he relocated to Oxford, where Lewis was. 
he became acquainted with um, Lewis at that time, and Lewis was bowled over by Charles Williams. He just he he thought Williams was absolutely uh, amazing. Tolkien was a friend of Lewis's and was friends to um, Williams as well. But it would have it must be said that Tolkien was not bowled over by. Uh, by Charles Williams, uh, and there are some details that may have had something to do with it. Uh, for Here's one possibility. Tolkien didn't much care for this influence um, because for him, uh, well, Charles Williams was really into the Arthurian romances. Uh, he was just really into Arthur. And uh, one of his poems, Taliesin Through Logris, is all Arthurian um, Arthurian stuff. Now, for Tolkien, the problem with Arthur, um, well, Tolkien in his books, in his writing, one of his big aesthetic values is uh, creating things that are vast in their remoteness. They're vast because they are ancient, really ancient, previous to Atlantis ancient, right? That kind of thing. But Williams is really into the Arthurian stories. And that influence of Arthur, well, hello, you know, Merlin, right? <laughs> All right. So um, you, you're reading that hideous, you read Out of the Silent Planet, you read Paralandra, and it's just going along, and then you come to that hideous strength, and all of a sudden we're dealing with Arthur and Merlin, and what? Where did this come from? Well, it came from Charles Williams. All of a sudden, we're dealing with Merlin, and Arthur has been taken up to Paralandra, it seems, and Ransom is suddenly the Pendragon. Well, look at that. For Tolkien, and this is the problem, for Tolkien, this made it almost modern. Okay? It's like almost modern. King Arthur being, for him, something like us remembering the Eisenhower years. So, oh, come on, you know, Jack, what are you doing? Um, so he didn't care for it. He didn't like the Arthur stuff. And he didn't like the Arthur, so it wasn't a criticism of the stories so much as they're virtually modern. They're virtually uh, right in our era. And he wanted, he wanted the storytelling to be uh, much farther removed from us. So the influence of Williams here was significant, was significant on Lewis, and the influence of Tolkien is less than it had been before. But because we are down on earth for this story, we were expecting differences, and we may not even have noticed the shift. So Mars, okay, it's that, there's that, and then Paralandra, okay, there's that, and then now here we're on earth, and it gets really, really Weird. I've, I've told people a number of times that reading that hideous strength, yes, it starts out very slow. It's just a very deliberate, quiet, slow opening, and you think, this is just like, like a regular novel. It's like, it's like, a, like a psychological novel. The others, you're into the action right away. Uh, with this, it's a slow build. But I tell people, don't worry, it, it turns into a white-knuckle ride by the time you're done. I want to make one final point. It may not take me uh, the normal length of time to make it, but we'll see. There is, there's a place in this story where Fairy Hardcastle 
who is trying to sniff out the hiding place of the saints at, uh, of the saints at St. Anne's so that the wicked folks at Nice can deal with them, has to decide which of three men to have followed. In other words, she's, she knows that, um, that Jane is in contact with the company at St. Anne's, and so she's got the university staked out, and there are three men who are Christians, Lancaster, Lily, and Dimble. Of course, Christians are the adversary. And of course, we know in the story, we know that Dimble was her man, but she decides because she only had two people that could tail, you know, three men leave, and she only had two people available to tail them. So she sends the, uh, the two men that she has after Lancaster and after Lily and leaves Dimble alone. She, she decides to leave Dimble alone for the night. The other two she has followed, and she has the other two followed uh, because even though they are Christians, they function in basically the same way that she does. Lancaster and Lily are considered by them to be formidable men. Lancaster is even described as, quote, a man we could find room for on our own side if he held the right views, page 237. So Lancaster is a tough cookie. He's a Christian. He's a tough cookie. But you, you get the, the feeling that... Uh, for example, Strake is a uh, is a priest, okay, and he's decking everything they're d- doing in apocalyptic language. But the reason he got there at Belbury got there to Belbury is because there was something wrong at the heart all the the way. And we're not told that Lancaster is a hypocrite. We're not told that, but we're told that he's the kind of real politician that if he held the right views, we might find a spot for him here. Another way of putting this is he let's, let's assume Lancaster is a good guy, but he would be relying on right-handed power. Um, so Ransom, at, with his company at St. Anne's, is uh, doing things that McPhee points out amounts to not doing things. So McPhee says, apart from growing some very decent vegetables... I don't know what we've done. I don't, I don't know what, in what sense would we describe what we're doing as resisting the bad guys. Lancaster, I think he's um, described as a, a member of parliament. Lancaster is an activist. Lancaster is going to be the kind of person who would oppose nice, not with um, mysterious left-handed power, but with straight-up right-handed power. So the enemy assumes that the kingdom of God functions with the same, uh, the same ideas of importance that they have, right? But God uses, in, in, in the best kind of story and in the real world, God uses the lowly to humble the proud. God uses the lowly to humble the proud, the company at St. Anne's was not on their radar, and this was not because it was a secret service operation. Rather, it was, cam- it was camouflaged in humility, something that the proud and conceited can never grasp. That was their camouflage, humility. Just, just as you have the same thing in Tolkien's great work, uh, Lord of the Rings, just as it had never occurred to Sauron that anybody in possession of the ring would ever seek to destroy it, 
So it never occurred to Belbury that Maladil, God, would entrust the defense of his world to a houseful of misfits. Wait, you know, of course, the, uh, the enemy is going to do something and he's going to have important people, important people the way we measure important people. So we're going to tail the guy who's a member of parliament. We're going to, we're going to tail the guy who has um, actual political power, who might do something against us. Just a side comment uh, uh, that I should make here, and that is some people object to the Lord of the Rings as a, you know, you've got Gandalf as a wizard and, and there's magic and, you know, are, are, we, are we encouraging kids to dabble in magic? Um, the problem with this is not that it's, um, the problem with, with it is that the criticism is almost exactly upside down. Um, because the Lord of the Rings is one of the most powerful anti-magic um, books ever written. What's the point of magic? The point of magic is to, uh, by potions or spells or devices like a ring, to exert mastery over the world, right? to exert mastery over the world, which is different than art and what the elves do. So the bad guys can craft a ring to, to bind the other rings, and you've got this ultimate ring. This, this, uh, so the ring represents what you might say is ultimate magic in this world. Ultimate magic. Through happenstance, the good guys come into possession of this ring. And the entire book is about them figuring out how to destroy it at, without using it. And everybody, everybody in the good guy's side is tempted Galadriel is tempted by the ring. Gandalf is tempted by the ring. Elrond is tempted by the ring. Boromir is tempted by the ring and fails. Right? Um, Frodo is tempted by the ring after, uh, after carrying it. Bilbo is tempted by the ring. And it, it's universally described as a temptation. The only, I, I correct, let me correct myself there. The only one who does not appear to have been tempted by the ring is Faramir. All right, so Faramir is not doesn't appear to be tempted by the ring. And then the whole mission of, of, that they undertake is do whatever it takes to destroy this thing without using it. And I think that that's a, that, that plot device is a mark of, is a mark of uh, genius because what you're doing is you're showing that the wicked and the godly think in different patterns completely. It's not like a football game where everything's the same except you're trying to get to this end of the field and we're trying to get to that end of the field. No, our thought processes are completely different. Well, Fairy Hardcastle's thought processes are completely different. She thinks she's looking for a sophisticated band of Christians who are resisting them in much the same way, using uh, much many of the same techniques, not necessarily overtly wicked techniques, but power, right? She's assuming that they're just going to come against her, come against them with the same kind of power that they would um, use on, on the believers. She might get her kicks through a little torture on the side, which she might assume, well, the Christians wouldn't do that, but they're going to fight fire with fire. They're going to fight water with water. They're going to fight uh, our power with their power. And so she doesn't have dimble tailed. The humble are raised, and the proud are thrown down. 
And in this most biblical plot, this, this, is, um, uh, this book is all about raising the lowly. You know, Mr. Bultitude is elevated. Ivy Mags is elevated. Mark Studdick is a great sinner. He's promoted. He's, uh, he, he's raised up. The humble are raised, the proud are thrown down. And in this most biblical plot, one final aspect of it needs to be pointed out. Mark Studdick deserves nothing. You know, so he's, he's kind of a waste. He's kind of a you know, waste of human skin when, you, when we meet him. And yet, his soul is saved. Right? His soul is saved. His wife is returned to him. And a promise of a child is strongly implied. Okay, he, his soul is saved, his wife comes back, a child is strongly implied. Even though they had prevented the conception of a child previous to this, who would have done great damage to the enemy, which is why Merlin wanted to have Jane executed. <laughs> so Merlin comes rampaging out of the past with low views of birth control. And so he wants to have her executed, and of course, Dimble and Ransom are all horrified. Um, but Mark is given a, a great deal. There is one thing, there's one other thing, however, uh, that I would like to end with uh, that Mark Studdick may have been given, although Lewis doesn't state the point explicitly, but I think the way, uh, the way it's set up, I, I believe that we're invited um, to uh, think this way. At the end of the story, because of what, ha- because of what happens to Ransom, the office of the Pendragon needs to be filled. The office of the Pendragon needs to be filled because Ransom's going up to, to Venus, back to Paralandra. Who becomes the next Pendragon? Who becomes the next, next Pendragon? So the way Ransom became one is he's called, he's called to the bedside of someone, an old person, and summoned and appointed, and the transition is made right there. Right? You can't have a vacancy. Uh, you can't have a Pendragon vacancy. So who's the next Pendragon? I think a strong case can be made that the new Pendragon is going to be Mark Studdick. Okay? The, new, the next Pendragon is going to be Mark Studdick. Some people say, well, what, what about his child? What about their child? Well, the problem is the child can't be the Pendragon until he grows up. Right? We need a Pendragon tonight. So, out of all the people in the uh, in, at St. Anne's, who is the most likely candidate to be the Pendragon? Um, then, about the only compelling reason for suggesting that this is not possible is that Studdick doesn't deserve an honor like that. To which the new Mark would reply, "Yes, exactly so." Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. Find the rest of those lectures on the Canon app.